Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the Great War and have around 6,000 members worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 17th of October 2022 and this is episode 274. On today's Dispatches podcast, I talked to Dr Rob Robinson, Honorary Research Fellow at the Blade Maritime Centre at the University of Hull. I talked to Rob about his research into British fishermen and their involvement in the Great War. Rob spoke to me from his office in Hull. Rob, welcome to the Dispatches podcast. Could you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in fishermen and the Great War? My name's Rob Robinson. Um, I'm a maritime historian. I'm an honorary research fellow at the Blades Maritime Centre, part of the University of Hull, uh, formerly worked uh, at the university. Um, I'm from a maritime family and indeed from a family that was involved in fishing and met and the merchant navy for generations and my own grandfather was uh, was actually on minesweepers during the great war as a fisherman so that sort of started my uh, kindled my interest in the, the whole business i suppose so so let's start by talking about the size and scale of the brushing british fishing industry and fishing fleet prior to the great war the, the British fishing industry on the outbreak of the Great War was the largest and most modern that the world had ever seen. Uh, there were lots of fishermen working from very small ports with very small open craft. But uh, the two leading sectors were the steam trawling sector and the herring trades. The steam trawling sector was modern steam vessels um, and salt white fish, cod, haddock and the like, um, which was largely sold on the home market, particularly for things such as the, the burgeoning fish and ship trade. Uh, the herring uh, fishery, in, in contrast, used uh, a range of sailing and steam drifters, less powerful than the trawlers. These vessels drifted, as it was called, curtains of nets across the sea to catch the shoals of herring, which were then processed. A lot were salted in barrels and sold in the export market, particularly in Europe, uh, whereas um, quite a lot of other uh, herring were smoked and sold to kippers, the traditional British breakfast. They were the two largest sectors in the country. And we had a very large fishing industry, if you t- include Ireland, the Isle of Man, the Channel Islands, uh, Scotland and England, Wales, you would, we would have had just slightly over 100,000 fishermen. And these fishermen were not only skilled and seasoned seafarers, but had an intimate knowledge of all the coasts around the British Isles. But it was unlikely, uh, given the nature of war at the time, that this navy of fishermen was likely to be taken up by the Great War uh, effort. What roles did fishermen play during the Great War at sea? Well, as I said, prior to the Great War, if we'd have gone back to the early part of the previous decade, then it would have been unlikely to most pundits that the fishermen had any role to play. The the modern Navy was professional, uh, relied on very skilled seafarers uh, and deployed state-of-the-art fishing, sorry, and deployed state-of-the-art um, uh, warships, um, epitomised, of course, I suppose, by the introduction of HMS Dreadnought in 1906. It did seem very unlikely that, that fishermen 
would be taken up in large numbers and even more unlikely that her vessels would be taken up in large numbers in any future conflict. But things had changed in that first decade as well. The Russo-Japanese War of 1904 to 1906 had demonstrated the uh, importance and the effectiveness of the sea mine. Quite a number of vessels were lost by both sides in that conflict to the sea mine. After, after the Russo-Japanese War, um, efforts were made to try to ban the use of sea mines, but these proved ineffective. Uh, and so the Admiralty embarked upon uh, a mission to try to find a means of uh, neutralising or sweeping, as we might say, these mines from the sea. Uh, a number of um, experiments had taken place using steam trawlers uh, in, in the year 1908 of, of Portland. The idea being that um, you needed some means of removing these from the bottom of the sea. And, and an ideal way of doing this perhaps was to sever the chains that held them to the seabed, the mines, and, and getting them to come up to the surface. Uh, it seemed that trawlers were a very useful means of doing this job because trawlers uh, um, towed their gear along the seabed. Their, their fishermen uh, were used to towing and handling cables and the like. And the idea of trawling was quite similar to the ideas envisaged for um, some sort of gear for removing the chains of mines on the seabed. Experiments took place and eventually a system of mine sweeping was developed that was used during the, um, the Great War and indeed for long afterwards. The idea that was emerged was to use two vessels or at least uh, and that would tow uh, a cables between them um, and these would be basically dragged along the seabed or quite close to the seabed um, and sever the the cables of the mines in the areas where they went. These mines would come to the surface and uh, they could then be disposed of by gunfire and the like. Uh, so that was the basic principle and it proved successful. Uh, it, it seemed that trawlermen were very skilled in using the cables This and they had the necessary ability and their vessels seemed suited in many respects as well. So in 1911, the uh, Admiralty created what was called the Royal Naval Reserve Trawler Section and he embarked on the program of, uh, of training um, large numbers of trawlermen to, um, to be able to handle minesweeping and deploy minesweeping equipment. Um, it was envisaged originally that about 1,500 or so fishermen would be trained and that about a thousand, sorry, and that about a hundred vessels would be taken into, uh, uh, into service come a conflict. In actual fact, by the time the war broke out, there were nearly 150 trawlers uh, already uh, uh, sort of taken into the reserve or being ready to be taken up come war and about 14 or 1500 trawlermen already trained. So that was the idea. These people would be on reserve, their vessels would be on reserve and they would be taken into service to provide the jobs of sweeping away mines come the war. And what was the official status of these fishermen? Were they actually uh, military personnel, civilian contractors or uh, volunteers? Well, the interesting thing about this was that although this number of fishermen were planned to go in this Royal Naval Reserve, um, uh, they were they were like any other reserve um, reservist. You know, they were likely to be called up. And when they were called up, they were on military service, as indeed were the vessels. So they they they, they were for all intents and purposes, part of the Royal Naval Navy in the same sense as a reservist would be part of the Royal Navy. Now, the interesting thing is that although this number of vessels, 100 vessels and um, 
and, and 1,400 or so fishermen were already in the Royal Naval Reserve. Within a few months of the war starting, the numbers expanded markedly. Large numbers of fishermen were taken into service, larger numbers of vessels were. And although the, the, the Admiralty had originally planned to use trawlers, which were adept and powerful enough to work as minesweepers. In actual fact, they also took up large numbers of the, uh, the the steam drifters, less powerful, but could do a myriad of jobs. Because come the war start, it was realised quite quickly that the Germans were going to deploy large numbers of mines on the first day of the war. On the first day of the war, the Germans embarked on a major mine laying um, operation off the coast of the British Isles. And um, and that led to um, uh, the, the Admiralty realising quite quickly that it needed to increase the number of vessels involved. And it was also the other aspect that led to the numbers of fishermen and fishing vessels uh, being taken up in large numbers was the unexpected effectiveness of the U-boat, of the submarine. Um, I think both sides had underestimated the capability of the U-boat before the war, but it's proved quite quickly with a number of notorious sinkings of Royal Naval vessels in the first few months of the war that the submarine menace had to be dealt with. And so large numbers of uh, trawlers and drifters were taken into Admiralty service uh, and armed and put out to fight against uh, the the U-boat menace as well. And how did the Germans regard uh, these fishermen who were trawling, um, I suppose, taking engaged in operations against U-boats and also trying to get rid of the mines that they had laid? It's worth thinking that at the beginning of the war, um, as I say, both sides had regarded, um, you know, the, the, the effectiveness of the submarine as being somewhat marginal to the, to, the, uh, to the whole conflict. And I suppose both sides didn't think that the fishermen who were taken up would have much of a role to play. Um, they might do in the minesweeping side, which in fact they did. But in the patrol work, it was seem this seemed very unlikely that they would be very effective. Uh, you know, submarines could go along the bottom uh, of the sea. If they were on the surface, they were faster than conventional fishing vessels. Um, they were certainly better armed. Um, in the, the fishing vessels themselves and their crews had very limited armament when it came to uh, dealing with U-boats at the beginning of the war. Uh, many were armed eventually with a three-pounder gun. Um, in addition to that, um, the fishing vessels that were taken them to service, for example, and put on anti-submarine patrol, well, this was regarded by the Germans as, as, as not very serious at first because, as I say, trawlers were uh, slower than, um, than uh, um, U-boats. Uh, drifters were the same. Um, U-boats could go below the surface, they were very difficult to locate. If they were on the surface, they were faster than drifters or trawlers uh, on the surface, and they were certainly better armed. Um, what could the trawlers do uh, to deal with this? Well, they could do several things. They were given um, what was called a modified sweep, uh, a cable that was laid basically on the, on, on, that they could tow behind them, and uh, which had um, uh, explosives attached to it, and it was towed along, and it, the, it was felt that, the, uh, that they'd come into contact with an underwater objects such as a U-boat uh, by electrical charge. This, this explosive could be, um, could, be, could be exploded. 
um, not very good at all, really, in terms of effectiveness. Uh, the other thing was if a U-boat was caught on the surface, then it could be rammed under the right circumstances. And indeed, a number of trawlers did ram and sink U-boats over the course of the war. But it wasn't until much later in the war that um, many of the armed trawlers became much more effective in terms of their anti-submarine patrol work. From 1916, they deployed uh, um, depth charges, um, the development of the hydrophone, often disregarded to some extent uh, by, um, by, by later military observers, uh, actually seems to have proved, I think, quite effective in helping give a location under the water of where, of where um, a, a U-boat might be when they've got more than one hydrophone working together on different vessels. Um, so that gradually over the course of the war, the vessels became more effective, their crews became more skilled. And by 1918, uh, they were regarded certainly by the, by the Germans uh, with a lot more um, respect than they probably had been in the early months of the war. And the, 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 um, the, the minesweepers, of course, um, they laid the mines. Sorry the, the, sorry, the minesweepers, of course, had the job of removing the mines from the sea. They, they had a different role to play altogether. And in order to do this, uh, they had to adopt all sorts of tactics. Uh, it was realised quite early on in the war that the, the Germans would make, as I say, extensive use of mines. Uh, and the large minefields that were laid by the surface mine laying vessels in the early months of the war uh, soon showed that it was going to be impossible to clear every mine from the sea. And so a system was rapidly developed of what, what we call the swept channels. That was of creating a channel following the east coast of Britain that would be regularly swept by minesweepers. Um, and that all vessels were encouraged and later expected to follow this swept channel. It was continually swept during daylight and, and suitable weather conditions. Um, and the idea was just to keep that area clear. Um, it, of course, it led to a concentration of action around that area because the U-boats would come in uh, into that area. Um, Germans would try to lay mines in that area. Uh, and of course, after the war, um, uh, the, the, the whole area along there was littered with the wrecks. Indeed, if we were to drain uh, the North Sea, if we could do that, what we'd actually probably see along the line of East Coast war channels would really be an extension of the Western Front, running from down by the channel all the way up the East Coast of England. And it was a myriad of wrecks. The situation became more complex as well for the mainstream vessel. Um, uh, in the middle of 1915, because by that time, the Germans had developed and evolved a mine-laying submarine, and they rapidly deployed these in large numbers. These could lay a number of mines in different places. Mine-laying vessels on the surface, of course, had been restricted in the areas they could get to by the fact that they would be located and spotted on the surface by, uh, by Royal Navy and patrol vessels. Um, but once mine-laying submarines were introduced, they could go to different parts of the British Isles and lay their, their clusters of mines. And this was to prove extremely difficult to counter. And that's the way the war pursued. And what, so we found mines not only along the east coast of England and Scotland, but also at various places all around the British Isles and, of course, far beyond. And so it was an incredibly difficult job. And if you were a minesweeper, it, what's worth remembering is the actual danger of the job. Because to sweep mines from the sea, you had actually to enter the minefield in which those mines lay. 
uh, and of course also in the process of, of sweeping along and cutting the cables a mine could be coming tangled in the equipment deployed by the trawler and coming to the when brought to the surface could explode alongside the trawlers uh, early on in the war large numbers of trawlers were lost later on in the war um, as we become more skilled uh, less less minesweeping trawlers were lost but it's reckoned that over the course of the war one minesweeping trawler was lost in service every other week of the war and on average half the crew would be killed when a trawler exploded a mine so it was an incredibly difficult and dangerous job um, and the actual role that fishermen played in that day in day out throughout the war has often been Forgotten. Do we have any idea of how many fishermen were killed and how many vessels were lost during the course of the conflict? Yes, something in the region of about 600 vessels were lost during the course of the conflict, uh, you know, which was a considerable number. It's very difficult to put figures on the number of fishermen lost. Uh, those in the Royal Naval Reserve um, trawler section, I think the numbers of de de deaths are in the region of about three and a half thousand, if I count in front of me. Uh, out of a a work uh, out of a, a sort of force of about 39,000 trawlermen. Uh, something like a quarter of all fishing vessels were lost during the course of the war, uh, but not all were lost in, in while in naval service, because the other thing that happened was those trawlers and drifters not taken up for uh, naval service were expected to fish, to re, re, you know, to keep up the beleaguered nation's fish supply. Uh, uh, and that was a very important job. And after the first few months of the war, um, certainly by April 1915, the Germans began deliberately targeting fishing vessels and sinking them. Prior to that, a number of fishing vessels had been lost, but they'd generally been lost through uh, contact with mines and the like. But from um, April 1915, a few months after the start of the first unrestricted warfare um, attacks, um, fishing vessels were targeted, typically. Um, an unarmed fishing vessel would find that a U-boat came up alongside, a shot would be fired over its bows, and the, the trawler crew were, uh, were uh, ordered by the U-boat uh, um, commander to uh, row in their open boat across to the deck of the U-boat. Uh, they would then be lined up on the deck of the U-boat. Uh, the, their boat, open boat would be borrowed by some of the crew who would go across and lay charges uh, on the, uh, the, the trawler, which would then be blown up. An alternative way was not even to bother laying charges, just to shell the trawler and sink it. The crew were then usually allowed to get back on the uh, uh, on the open boat and row away. And large numbers of crew survived. And there was a degree of chivalry quite often in that. I mean, there were some cases of, of war crimes, as we would call them today, being committed. But generally, they were quite they were quite chivalrous in that. I, I, one trawler skipper I knew uh, of. Um, he um, when when he was about to get back in the rowing boat after his, his ship had been badly damaged by the U-boat, um, was was told by the U-boat uh, commander um, that they they brought across from his galley all the tea and the that the, uh, uh, and, and everything that was on board laid out for a meal and put it in the the fore part of the rowing boat. And here, by the way, was some German bread to take with you. You'll find it not as good quality as yours. That was the sort of conversation you had. So it was. An intriguing war. Not all the fishermen were lost as a result of that targeting by U-boats, but other fishermen lost their lives um, in just the normal course of civilian action through contact with mines and the like.
And how would you rate the impact and contribution of fishermen to the British war effort? Yeah, when we hear about the Great War at Sea today, we, we, we tend to hear about dreadnoughts and Jutland and oceans of academic print and, and popular print have been written and devoted to dreadnoughts and Jutland. What you don't hear about is the role that the fishermen, and the fishermen had a key role to play in, in their naval service because remember, the war against mines and new boats was very grim and very bitter. Uh, what the, were the Germans trying to do with these? Well, Britain was an island nation, and what they were trying to do was cut off our arteries of trade and commerce uh, to, if you like, bring Britain to its knees because of a shortage of raw materials, uh, munitions for war, uh, uh, and food. Um, and it was the fishermen and their vessels, day after day, month after month, throughout the war, that played a major part in, in keeping those sea lanes open. They were never closed. We managed to keep them open. And that was an incredibly effective job. Uh, criticism was often uh, laid at the door of the fishermen saying that they didn't remove, that they didn't sink enough U-boats. But that was only part of the role, really. What they did was they disrupted U-boat activity to a large extent. Um, they, they would attack the vessels, forcing them under the water, certainly after they got um, uh, depth charges from, from 1916 onwards. Uh, they inflicted quite severe damage on quite a number of U-boats, which were forced to turn back and have costly repairs at base. Others were sunk, of course, and an increasing number was being sunk by about this uh, trawler fleet by the end of the war, the drifter fleet. Um, so they had an important role to play. One of the things that we know transformed um, the, the war at sea from 1917 onwards, despite the un unrestricted nature of the conflict became in 1917, uh, was, the, um, was the fact that we finally began to use convoys. The Admiralty had been against convoys and the use of them until 1917. And these convoys, you know, put ships in groups uh, and to get at the the, um, the, at the merchant vessels, um, the U-boats the, the now, instead of finding a, an unescorted vessel on its own in the sea, had to brave these the, the, the guards around the convoys, which typically consisted not only of destroyers, but a, no, a number of uh, armed trawlers. Um, and they've all played an important role in this. So when we talk about the convoy system, we forget that large numbers of vessels involved in guarding the convoys were not only Royal Naval destroyers and the like, but also uh, armed trawlers and sometimes armed drifters and the like. So they had a very crucial role to play. The fact that we continued um, to be able to um, keep our sea lanes open is due in no small measure to the role of fishermen and fishing vessels that they played during the war. And fishermen did not were not just deployed on trawlers and drifters and the like, but um, quite a number of them found themselves being taken upon paddle steamers that were brought into service that were requisitioned, you know, excursion vessels that again were quite handy and used for this sort of work. So it, it was a very important uh, role that they played. Uh, and as I say, one that's largely been forgotten. I think that's partly because the, uh, the history of the Royal Navy tends to, the history of the Royal Navy in the war quite often gets written by people who were very much involved in the Royal Naval, uh, sorry, the Royal Navy proper, you know, the, the, the mainstream Royal Navy. Um, not, not a lot of fishermen were very eloquent, wrote about their accounts uh, later on. And that, I think, is part of the reason we don't hear so much about them today. Which leads me neatly onto my penultimate question is, is, how do we remember their contribution today and how do we commemorate their, their sacrifice? 
Well, I think that what what I I and a number of other people have been trying to do is raise awareness, assemble reminders of the fact that the war at sea was much more than one dimensional. It was much more than dreadnoughts, much more than the Great Battle of Jutland. It was very complex. And a major part of that war was about uh, keeping the sea lanes to Britain and elsewhere open. And fishermen played important roles along with their vessels not only in the grim war against mines and U-boats, i.e. sweeping the, the mines from the sea, but also in uh, attacking and disrupting the U-boat activity. That was an absolutely crucial role and one that's largely forgotten. Uh, and it didn't just happen off the British coast. Um, uh, fishermen, fishing vessels, taking into admiralty service, found themselves working um, off the north coast of Russia, uh, mine sweeping to keep the, the channels of trade open up there. They were deployed all over the Mediterranean. Um, um, one of the BCs, uh, won by a fisherman, was uh, in, the, uh, uh, in the blockade of the, the Straits at Taranto across the Adriatic Sea, which was an attempt to keep the Austro-Hungarian vessels and, and some of the German vessels that were in the Adriatic Sea penned up. Uh, so they have a really, really important role to play. Uh, and, and we have an important role to play in assembling reminders of what they did. Um, also, in addition to that, of course, fishermen, although the catch size was reduced dramatically, they played a key role in supplying our beleaguered nation with essential supplies of fish. Uh, they did a lot better than this than the German fleet. Uh, I think by the end of the war, something like, British catches were about one third of their pre-war levels. The 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 German uh, catching level was, I think, under one fifth of what its pre-war level had been. So their their, their um, contribution was immense. Uh, uh, and after the war, when this naval navy was dispersed, uh, they were they were largely forgotten. There were a few books published about them in the interwar period, but not a lot since then. And yet, they are a key part of our great war story. Which leads me neatly on to the final question is where can people learn more about your work on the fishermen during the great war? Uh, several places. Uh, I would recommend my own book, uh, 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 Fishermen, um, the Fishing Industry in the Great War at Sea, published by Liverpool University Press, which is now available in paperback, a lot cheaper than the hardback. Uh, or if you want to know the story of a specific vessel, then look at the story of the steam trawler Viola and my other book, uh, uh, which is called Viola, published by Lud Star Books. Um, that's the story of a, a, a fishing vessel that's still with us to this day, Steam Troll of Viola. It currently lies at Great Beacon in South Georgia. Uh, but during the Great War, it was requisitioned, taken into service in September 1914, and fought all the way through the war, finally being demobilized in February 1919. And if you look at it, as I have done, it's logs story, you'll see that day after day, week after week, month after month, it was in the front line of the war against new boats. And in the course of that, had many encounters with new boats and was involved in sinking of both the UB-115 and the UB-30. It really is quite a story itself in terms of that. And this vessel, when you look at what it did in the war, steamed far more miles on the front line than any dreadnought. Uh, and you'll learn more about the story from there. And within those books, you'll find quite a large bibliography of, of, of other people's writings about the Great War. Rob, thank you very much for your time. Bye. Bye-bye. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. 
The theme music for this podcast was George Bothworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth, performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time. <laughs>